Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember as a small child making an impact on you? This is going to sound strange. Shell gasoline. Oh, wow. (laughs) Say more. Well, I grew up in Houston and my parents only got gas at that one Shell gas station. And when I moved for college and beyond, I have always, I remember having this, where's the Shell gas station? And it's my, I think, because I didn't grow up in marketing, right? I didn't even really know what marketing was. It was that realization, huh, there's, I have a connection to a brand for no logical reason. And I feel highly loyal and I have this belief that it's better than all the rest. I think it, it, there's, there's a power in that. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Linda Lee, the Chief Marketing Officer of Meals and Beverages at the Campbell Soup Company, the 150-year-old diversified food company with about $8.7 billion in sales. Way back in 1895, it introduced its signature product, Campbell's Tomato Soup, one of my favorites. But get this, in 1955, one of Campbell's home economists introduced the recipe for the staple on every American table every Thanksgiving. You know it, you love it, the green bean casserole. My guest Linda is a consumer products maven. She began her career at my alma mater, Procter & Gamble, and then worked at General Mills, Mondelez, Stonyfield Farms, and the Chef's Cut Real Jerky Company before taking on the Campbell CMO role in December 2019. Linda has a non-traditional CMO career path, beginning in engineering at PNG after her degree in chemical engineering at Cornell University. This is my mm-mm good conversation with Linda Lee. Linda, welcome to the CMO podcast. You and I both worked at PNG and you left PNG about exactly when I was promoted to global marketing officer. I hope my appointment was not a factor in your leaving the company. Absolutely not. In fact, I I followed you in the times that I left. So definitely not. But what what a coincidence. Indeed. Well, P&G, I think, was your first job out of college at Cornell. So I I have to ask you, why did you leave P&G after several years? And was that tough? It was. It was probably, I would say, my first difficult decision, life decision, was leaving P&G. Um, it was a place that I grew up at and felt just sense of family and connection with the company, with the brands, and with the people. And so it was a difficult decision. And 
ultimately and ironically, the reason I left was I was actually getting ready to move into marketing. I was, I started in R&D. I had decided that, oh, wow, the commercial pieces are the things that really get me excited. And I raised my hand to move into marketing, which at the time was not easy for a cross-functional transfer. Um, I had that opportunity. And for some reason, I just wasn't ready to fully commit. I, I was always under the impression that in marketing, you know, it's up or out. It is a rat race to that top. You got to be fully in. And when I got the call from a recruiter at General Mills for a consumer insights role, which I really hadn't even considered previously, there was something, and I can't even fully explain it, but just in my gut, I remember thinking, I'm not ready to fully be, you know, kind of dedicate the next 15 years in this up or out um, space of marketing. There's something about General Mills and meeting the people there that I think I just got to go up to Minneapolis and check out. So it, it really didn't make any sense. And I remember my first kind of career lesson from that decision was when I you know, when I left, I remember people saying, if you ever want to come back, give us a call, which growing up at Proctor, you were always, you know, you always felt like, oh my gosh, it's a one-way exit. You know, once you leave, you can't return. Um, so in a very short time, I feel like I, I got a, you know, a lot of good lessons that have carried through. Well, it's interesting, that whole story. So P&G said yes to you about coming over into marketing. And you opted not to make that decision and go external to General Mills. I think we should pause at this for a moment because it's a culture at P&G when I was there that I really did try to change and I was not successful. I felt marketing was the center of the company. That's where all the senior management came from. But I thought having only one choice of up or out was not good. We should have room for people to have a jungle gym type career, to find their mm -hmm. place, to see where they're a master. If they want to be a master, be a master. If they want to make it to the top of the company, then go for it. But I thought we should not have had one mold. And, and there was a, that, that caused a lot of discussion at the top of the company when I said, why don't we have multiple career paths in marketing? I didn't win that battle. I think they've changed a bit mm -hmm. since, since then. But I think it's very interesting that you were self-aware enough to know at that time that that's not quite how you want it to run your life and your career. Well, I think you're giving me too much credit. Well, <laughs> I don't think I had the self-awareness fully, but I definitely, um, I just went with my gut. And I think that's something that has... Uh, really paid well throughout my career of uh, things may not make sense in the moment, but go trust your gut and go with it and believe in yourself that you will be successful in whatever that is. And honestly, that can look and, you know, it, it's not defined in one outcome only. And I've also described a bit of my journey as kind of naively, walking through doors. 
And when you do so, new doors will show up that you never would have been able to imagine. And and that's a little of what happened when I left P&G. I really thought, I remember back then, I really thought I was making p- perhaps the biggest mistake in my career. You know, P&G was the pinnacle of CPG, of brands, of marketing, and I, I, it just felt like I was taking this big risk to walk away. And, and I had my moments of, oh my gosh, am I, you know, messing this up? And of course, looking back, wow. <laughs> you know, it, it, you it, did okay. Yeah, <laughs> it all worked out. Were you it ever, were, I know they said to you, if you ever feel like coming back, call us. Were you ever tempted to do that? You know, it's funny, I wasn't. It's back to the whole new doors yeah. just kept showing up. And But I will say what I have done is I have stayed connected to not just a handful, but many people who I kind of feel like I grew up with. And um, that's been that's been really tremendous. And in, you know, I would say things like Facebook or LinkedIn has really made that possible. But there was something special with the people that I worked with and met um, while at Proctor, even though it was, you know, only five years um, and 25 years ago, it really left that impression. What was the biggest lesson or leadership lesson you took from P&G that lives with you today? Single biggest one, everyone is a leader. And it is because I didn't grow up in marketing. I grew up in R&D. I absolutely believe every function who sat around the table brought leadership. And it was, and what we all had in common was putting the consumer and the business at the center of then the you know, expertise that each of us brought forth. But definitely, um, that's something that's carried forth in all of the companies and roles that I've been in is that expectation and openness for leadership to step through from anyone around the table. And, and that, I think, is quite unique. Well, when you left P&G, you began a tour of some of the top consumer products companies in the world, right? General Mills, as you said, Mondelez for several years, Stonyfield Farm, and now Campbell's as CMO. In which of those companies do you feel your leadership really, really accelerated, your leadership skills? It was at Mondelez, at the time it was called Kraft. Um, I had over an 11-year period, I started as Cadbury Schweppes, that became Cadbury, that became Kraft Foods, that then became Mondelez. So a lot of change over that time. And from the Cadbury to Kraft Foods acquisition, I had the opportunity to go to China. And up until then, I had been in um, R&D, I had been in Consumer Insights, and then in Global Innovation. I hadn't, at this point, I hadn't done any marketing, any general management, but it is a bit of things just kind of come together. There's a little luck and a lot of just things that add up to give for opportunities to show up. 
And I had the opportunity to go to China to lead the expansion, geographic expansion of gum, the gum portfolio into China, which was at the time the second largest um, market for chewing gum. And this was all driven from the top of demonstrating one of the values of the acquisition. And so it was very visible. And and so they kind of plopped me into a a region, into a country that I had never worked in, um, that I honestly did not know anyone, um, and in a role of general management and head of marketing that I had never done before. And a, it is, to me, that was a real test of when you don't have necessarily the full knowledge, you don't have the experience, um, you are relying on your leadership to be able to pull together a bit of, you know, where are we going? How are we getting there? And what resources do we need? To, to make that happen and all in 18 months from literally, you know, start to finish to a national launch. Um, pretty, it was, I don't think, I'm not sure it's ever been done um, in the China market for, a, you know, for a CPG brand. That's a high risk move. You know, we used to say at P&G when I was there that if you move someone out of their category, out of their country, and out of their role, it's a very, very high risk of failure. Yeah. So that, that, all of that happened to you in that, but obviously it had a happy ending. And the launch, from what I've seen, was wildly successful, one of the most successful launches in the company's history. So could you just reflect a little bit on that, Linda, about what did you do in those early days to establish your success in that role? And in that market, and with a company in uh, in a situation where the the deck was a bit stacked against you, I have to say, it was definitely stacked against me. And I'll be honest with you: um, when we got to literally the final decision of go no go, I was certain there was no way the company was going to sign up for the business and commercial opportunity um, that it required, and. I had written a note, sent it out to everyone who had been a part of it, thanking them so that everyone felt really great that it was successful to get to that point. And so even to be even for myself, it was it there was no guarantees in this whatsoever. And we did a bit of a kind of a debrief celebration um, at the end of this, at the end of the 18 months when I moved back to the U.S. and um, someone very senior, uh, who I highly, highly respect, um, he said, you know, this is the first time in my career where we approached every difficult decision or milestone, not with should we do this or not, but with what must we do to move on to the next milestone. So there was an assumption of success, of progress, of, you know, it it was somewhat, I think we behaved in a way of this is one direction. This is not at every milestone. I have a chance 
to to stop this or have a chance to you know not move forward. So so I think that there there was something in that just that that naiveness and belief mm-hmm. of we can make this happen. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, I know we've been talking about your career path, and I want to stay there for a few more moments because it's so interesting, you know, some choices you made in your career. And as I look at the companies you've worked and your career arc, you took two, I would say, unexpected turns in your career path. You know, going from General Mills from P&G is not that unexpected. People do that. But you went to Ipsos, you know, the global Mm -hmm. research company based in Paris. You did that for about a year, and you went also to a venture-based startup, uh, Chef's Cut Real Jerky, for about a year. And most of your experience had been with very large companies, and all of a sudden you go to a venture-based startup. So those are two sort of funny left turns. So Mm -hmm. I'd like you to talk to us a bit about that. You know, what, what was your thinking in joining each of those? Was it a new door that opened? Or was it something more intentional or more deliberate than that? It was a little of both. And funny you used the phrase left turns because that's how I described it too. Uh, the move to Ipsos, at that point, I had come back from China. I was with Mondelez. I was very clear that I needed to run. It's one thing to start a business. It's another to run existing businesses. And how do you truly manage the full, you know, top to bottom um, kind of lines of a P&L? And, and I had done that role, but every year it grew. I started with Ritz crackers to then all um, kind of crackers and then t- integrating fully together, North America. So you know, I had two years in China, three years back in the U.S., this five-year incredible just journey, and literally every year was a vertical ramp-up. And at that point in time, I launched Good Thins in the U.S. as a way to continue growth on Wheat Thins, turned around Triscuit, and developed a new um, campaign after a long-standing campaign on Ritz. So I looked at my five years and, and I remember thinking, well, what's next? <laughs> you know, I've done this in a short time. Um, uh, what What is that next thing that's going to keep me feeling like I'm growing? Um, and kind of it just serendipity was a, a mentor recommended a book called Exponential Organizations. And as I read that, I remember thinking to myself, wow, all of the experiences and knowledge that I've gained um, over the last 20 years that's led me to success, they are not going to be the same ones that I need to be relevant as a marketer and as a general manager for the next 20. 
Now, last question about your career before jumping into your job at Campbell's. You are a top CMO now at a top company, but as you've already said, you did not follow the traditional marketing career path, right? You began as a process engineer at P&G, then into products research, then into consumer insights at General Mills and Mondelez, and then the big experience in China. So I want you to reflect a bit about how that non-traditional marketing career path has prepared you to be an outstanding CMO at a top company? I think it is the, I didn't learn it from a book of here's the playbook and my job is just to, you know, to execute that. Um, There's something to be said of it's your first time being put in a situation. And I think that's where I use my um, kind of a little of my scientific background of literally understanding, dissecting what is my, and being able to articulate clearly, what is my problem? What are my assumptions? What are my boundaries from a commercial, fully commercial lens? What are my boundaries? And what are my hypotheses? And let's then just test and learn our way. And, and so I think it's more, I apply that to literally every problem that, um, that is in front of us. And I also think because I didn't grow up in marketing, being able, I, I do think you get, you're able to get more out of your cross-functional partners if you have sat in their seat before, because I know I can, I can push a bit more and challenge. I, I'm not, I'm probably not a great receiver of no's or we can't do this. That's not possible. Like those things don't really sit well with me. And, and I think, but you know, I, I also believe that I need to be a part of then the solve, the creative problem solving. And I just think I'm a better creative problem solver because I've sat in the different seats and I, and certainly, you know, innovation, um, having understanding of technical kind of capabilities and realities um, that has definitely helped me be able to challenge, but also be part of the solution, trying to inspire the the problem solving. And my first uh, brand manager job at PNG, I had a brand group of five people. Three of them were from other functions. Because I, I agree with you, when you bring in someone from another function, they bring a very different perspective, a sense of understanding. Uh, they were all from technical functions, so they had that scientific background, that database, that curiosity. Uh, so I think it's, it's pretty magical when you cre- can create a team of that diversity. I mean, amazing things can happen. Yeah, and it really is, like you use the word perspective. Um, I've said to marketers, if you really think about it, we literally don't create anything ourselves. Um, we rely on, you know, the technical functions to create the physical product. We rely on sales to be able to get it, you know, kind of the route to market, get it into the hands of our consumers. We rely on our agencies to create the communications that our consumers see or experience. And so when I think, when you think of it in that way, then you say, well, then what is my job? My job is to be clear on what 
great looks like? Like, where are we going? But then how do I inspire and get, how do I get serve? There's, there's an element of servant leadership, but what does then each person or function need to be able to do their job? And that, that really, in my mind, is what, what our job is as marketers, is how do we unlock each function or each individual so that they can ultimately get the products that we make or the communications or commercials that we put out there. Um, they're the ones who are the actual makers. So is that how you describe your job to your parents and friends and siblings? And I'm not sure they know what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I've described it a bit of like, it's like a conductor, right? Yeah. A, a conductor of an orchestra. You're not actually playing the instruments. You're not the, it, but how does it all come together and the human aspect of, okay, what does each individual need to be able to show up um, at their best doing what they love and what they're great at that honestly is not what you you yourself can do. I like your choice of words, unlocking other functions potential. And it's very, very powerful. All right. Now let's talk about Campbell's and your CMO job there. It's a 152-year-old company. PNG is like 180, so they're both, you know, old story institutions. You're about 19 months into this job. It's your third CMO role, but the biggest one, I think, by far. And most of your tenure has been through the pandemic. So I want you to think about when you started, what did you think was your largest challenge coming into this job? And what is your biggest challenge today? I was really clear on what my challenge was in joining Campbell. And it's why I said yes, is getting soup to grow, to win in soup and getting soup to grow. That is, you know, what our company is named after. And um, in that, the I guess, if you look at the trends, you know, pre-pandemic, they were not uh, positive. And, and that's what got me excited was the belief of, I believe we can do that. And it's not just I, it's really we, that that was the agenda that had been put forth and I wanted to be a part of that. So I thought that was the greatest challenge was how do we get soup to grow? Um, the pandemic actually ended up accelerating our strategies that we had built for the brands and how to win in soup. It was around how do we get as much food out there as possible, knowing and just seeing, you know, what people were wanting. And, and so you know, that was phase one. Absolutely. How do we do that? How do we do that safely? Very serious time. And I think as it then relates to marketing, for me, it was very much the agenda became quickly. Wow. How do we make sure our consumers are are inspired to use, you know, they're cooking a lot of meals at home, how do we help them, either first-time cooks, people who aren't really used to cooking, or folks that are just making a lot of meals, how do we help them? And at the time we talked about it, everything that we were doing in marketing, let's use the filter of are we providing comfort or utility? And you know that should guide us in whether we 
should be doing something or not. So that I'd say was kind of that within all the first first, um, phase. I think um, where it then became was, wow, we got all this new trial, these new consumers. Um, They can't maybe came through our products, but really now this is an opportunity to introduce or reintroduce our brands. And, and so let's make sure our effort, you know, let's make sure we've got efforts there so that people know us more than just by our products and the function, but rather who, what are we about? And um, what are the many ways you, you know, our, foods can play a role um, in really kind of widening um, the aperture to that. And I'd say we're now in the third phase, which is, you know, as that world opens up, and it's not the same, but as that world opens up, how do we make sure that our foods and our brands continue to be relevant when the sense of not just comfort, but that desire for discovery Reemerges, and and so you know what does that look like? Do we have the right innovations? Do we have the right activations that would do so? So soup got uh, the category got healthier, I assume, during the pandemic. Yes, and continues to be. What are your lessons in keeping that? You said you want to reintroduce your brands to people and so on, but a lot of other CMOs are dealing with this all other challenge. Their mm-hmm. category surged during the pandemic. Some of that is continuing. For some people, it's not. So the question is, how do you, what do you do with these new consumers? How do you keep them in the brand? How do you keep them interested, excited? All the things you're talking about. So can you share any learning you have about how you are maintaining that momentum? So I would firstly say it's been pretty exciting to see that continued momentum, not just in one part or one brand, it has been consistent across all of the brands. And, in, you know, I'd say that my first learning is you can't fake it of whether or not you really are solving, adding value or solving a problem. You know, I think in PNG terms, there the job's to be done, right? Are you really, really fulfilling um, a job? For our for the consumer, and it is how I measure that is the repeat that we're seeing, and that elevated consumption um, that remains. That shows me that absolutely right. That there's there's a need there, and our food, our products, absolutely are fulfilling that. Even as the world opens up, even as we experience these heat waves. Um, you would think that some of our foods wouldn't um, wouldn't be, but it. So I, I think that's the first piece: is you can't fake whether or not you fulfill a need. Um, the second lesson I would say is around habits. Habits can be formed, but it takes the repeated new ritual, new. Um, kind of building into your your repertoire of whether it's skill or just, you know, that involuntary choices that you make. And, and it, the, I think this has lasted a long enough time 
for the, the new folks and the new, you know, the new um, behaviors to stick. So th- this is probably, I'd say, if I took it to a lesson, I sometimes feel like when we're in large brands, we expect that one campaign, that one year to, to be sufficient of, you know, if we're going to turn in, even myself, like if I'm going to turn around a brand, I give myself 18 months to turn around a brand. And the reality is, is there enough kind of purchase cycles? Is there enough routine that's built in, enough experiences um, that have that been truly, it's not just seeing something multiple times, but actually experiencing it many times before it starts to be part of your routine. So I feel like we had kind of a mass, in mass um, learning of that. And then I'd say the third is, is leaning in. So when the, this was all happening, a ton of uncertainty, we didn't know how long this would last, but leaning in to investment. What do you think has been the biggest change in marketing or brand building at Campbell's over the last 19 months? The biggest change has been agility. So, you know, at Campbell, the way we were doing marketing was a little in that traditional annual planning and having everything lined up, well thought through, lined up, and then it becomes in year executing versus, and then at the end of that, the year you measure it and then you, you know, create your next year's plan. And I think what we've learned and are doing a great job of practicing is the agility and looking outside, asking the question like, what's going on with consumers? Where do our products and brands have a right to be a part of? And ideally be bringing ideas and solutions that are relevant. Um, So really adding value to consumers' lives, but not doing it at just a macro sense, but in an everyday um, sense. And a great example would be last Thanksgiving. Last Thanksgiving, um, you know, that was not part of our plan, right? We had a traditional holiday plan, but we realized, whoa, and we ended up getting the the data behind it that, you know, two thirds of Americans were not going anywhere for Thanksgiving. uh, a fifth of them that were putting together a Thanksgiving dinner for the first time ever. And, and it was that realization of, whoa, this is a place that we can really help. And we know that consumers um, are connected through our brands. Like, you know, we're a big part of that Thanksgiving spread. And it's a moment that people are brought together, a lot of memories and, you know, new moments to be created. Well, that's not going to happen. And so what are we going to do about that? Um, so that's just one example. Another one was around snow days because of the virtual learning and the threat of, of no snow days. For, and then for those of us who grew up, you know, in the, in, uh, the parts of the country that snow, that's part of, it's a rite of passage for, um, for kids and families. So we ended up creating a program around that and connecting. We had a snowman, um, limited time chicken noodle soup that we were launching anyways, but then connecting it all together. So 
it was the beauty of like knowing if you you know are really connected to what your consumers are experiencing and feeling, intersecting that to then where can we genuinely you know show up and provide some value. I think that's something we've we've done now repeatedly, and it's kind of been born during the pandemic. I had lots of snow days as a kid, and I always had Campbell's tomato soup on our snow days with grilled cheese. With a grilled cheese, of course. <laughs> Of course. That was a ritual. Actually, it still is. Yeah. Hey, I, I want to get you to weigh in on, on two of the most frequently asked questions I'm getting these days, and that is, how do you retain and attract talent now? Which has always been a challenge for all of us. It's especially a challenge now. And the second issue is, how do you find your brand's voice in these times of such upheaval, socially, pol politically, and economically. Your employees want to know what your voice is, and so do your customers. So on those two issues, on talent and on brand voice, what's, what's, your, what's your advice? What's your counsel to your teams and also to our listeners? On attracting talent, no question that everyone's, you know, that that's a challenge. And then you add on top of that, this whole question of flexibility, the future of work, it, it just get, becomes even more competitive and more of a unpredictable what things look like in the future. I think this is a little of, um, you got to focus on what you can control, right? There will be things that just are not controllable. And in that sense, you have to just know what's happening and be able to pivot. But in terms of what you can control, I do think that in attracting to, in both the answer to both of these is around authenticity, but um, I think in attracting talent, it is who are we, you know, who are we um, as employees of this company, and what are our values? How do we show? Or do we have pride in what we do? Do we believe in? Um, the products and the brands, are we buying it ourselves? It, you know, I've always said that's a big test of if we're not buying it ourselves, why would we expect a consumer to? And, and so I feel like that, I know when I talk to candidates, again, this is an area you can't fake. And, and that is, it is having to um, share that with a candidate that they can feel it. Like I always tell candidates, I'm not just here to interview you. You should be interviewing us because what I want are, I want that chemistry and I want this to be, uh, you know, we want to work together. And in doing so, I, I, I genuinely believe that when you have empl your employees are, your biggest kind of talent attractor or detractor, honestly, they, it, you're, it all, it starts from there. Of course, you know, how our brands are showing up and, you know, all the work in all, that's out there in the public space, of course that matters. But I think the, the um, special sauce is, is in just your, your genuine, your employees, the culture and the values of that. Because it's not even just an attracting talent. Like that's just step one. How do you retain talent? Um, and, and I think 
that is where the repeat, if you want to use language, right, mm -hmm. the repeat comes from is do people feel connected um, and to where they are. On the brand voice, absolutely, um, very tempting, very tempting to follow the headlines, follow the trends, answer difficult questions in a way that you know people want to hear it. Ultimately, I think you have to you have to know who you are and you have to know where you are. I almost treat brands like humans, like people, because I say, you know, people, we constantly say we're all on that journey of self-development, self-awareness, growth. I feel brands are the same. So, yes, you know, we want brands, we kind of, and I use in quotes a little, we want brands that have purpose and show up in that way or brands that are, you know, highly inclusive and reflect diversity, brands that um, that have very strong points of view on social kind of topics um, that are all very real and very good, but you have to know where your brand is at where consumers give you permission. And if you want to go, you know, if you want, what are you doing to kind of earn your way to credibly participate then um, in certain conversations? Like it's about the actions that add up that give you that credibility. Because otherwise, if you just, you know, one day show up doing something and it's a, it's a, it's a moment to capture a moment, an opportunity, it, it's not authentic. And consumers are smart. They will pick that up. And, and so I think my advice is a bit of like, is um, it, it be empathetic a bit to wait. Like, it's okay if you're not all the way, to, right? Understand where you are, be true to that, and then build, you know, build your way, mm -hmm. but always test yourself with, are the actions consistent? Yeah. And, you know, do we have the permission? Yeah. I like your point about brands are also evolving. I, I was in Japan a few years ago with a senior group and they asked me my definition of a brand. And I said, it's just the collective intents and behaviors of the people who work on the brand. It's as simple as that. So it's, uh, and I think as long as we keep that in mind, that a brand is really just a manifestation of human beings that work on the brand then uh, everyone's always on a path of more growth and learning and discovery. And then brands are no different because brands are built by people. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that's the difference of, you know, brands that are, that are still in its first chapter, you know, where the founder is still a part of that is because the founder is the personification, is the brand. There's such clear linkage. And it's so easy to see that. I think when you're working on a hundred, you know, plus year brand, it can feel disconnected. But that I think is our role. It is our role of as we come onto a brand, and I see it as we have like we're so lucky to be a brand steward for a small point in time of these amazing, you know, brands. I think job one is to to say what is the truth of this brand that is everlasting. That's the can't touch. And my job is to to say how do I bring that to life 
in today's world, in today's culture, and today. But I have to stay true to what's at the core. Um, that, that I feel like is the stewardship. Okay, Linda, this is a great discussion, but we're going to move into the last section, which is the creative brief, which we're going to explore further insights about you. And the first question is, who's been your most important mentor in your career? I've had, I've been very lucky and have had, you know, several, but probably the most important one has been a woman um, named Lorna Davis. And she was the CEO of Craft China. Um, she was the one who took me, even though she knew nothing about me in our first meeting. I didn't want to go to China, and but they convinced me to have breakfast with her. And when I did, I'm not kidding, within the first five minutes, she said to me, maybe, she said, look, if this were up to me, I would take this money and go sell more Oreos. So this is, you know, launching gum in China is not something on my agenda. And literally the moment she said that to me, and I went into this breakfast feeling like I was just doing everyone a favor by going to the breakfast, I immediately said to her, I'm like, I'm in. It makes no sense, but what I will tell you, you just showed me that I can trust you, that you're going to just tell me like it is. And in that, I highly respect. And, and so, you know, since then, obviously, you know, we, we've, our relationship has developed. She was the one who I actually went to Stonyfield um, with. She's the one who I, um, you know, ended up running North America crackers at Mondelez. And today, you know, she's my friend and she just has a perspective about life um, that is vulnerable, authentic, bold, uh, fearless, um, and human. So yeah, she's a big, a big person. <laughs> What's the marketing campaign or initiative that you are most proud of in your career? like choosing, choosing kids. Um, I think it would have to be the stride launch in China. And the reason is not only were the business results tremendous, I always measure the success with in strategy, business strategy, with what sticks years after I'm there. Because um, I think we as uh, business owners and marketers, we like to put our fingerprints. We come in and have a different perspective, rightly so, you know, and, and to me, the real test of sustaining success is if someone else, you know, the people after you choose to stay on that path and to continue to build upon that. So um, I would say it, it was something that was against all the odds and I had the least knowledge of, um, but has stuck around probably the longest. What award or recognition in your career has been most meaningful? Ooh, that's a tough one because I'm not into any of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. I, yeah, I... Ah, yeah, I don't really worry about 
awards and recognition. I think if you were to ask me the ones that have been most meaningful have been when I've been, you know, the first female or the first, um, I'm a little, I mean, I guess there's a little of that. I like to break things a bit, like break the, Mm -hmm. the, this is how things are. Um, so, you know, it might be, honestly, if I had to choose one, it might be the, being in the role that I'm in today has, is a recognition because sure. honestly, I don't, I didn't think I, you know, I never aspired nor thought it was possible because I know I'm not normal. Um, I don't show up in the same way that many do who, you know, end up in these types of seats. So I, if anything, it's a recognition that you can get there in a different way. What are you watching now or reading or listening to that's interesting, meaningful, entertaining, informational for you? Besides your podcast? Oh, well, thank you for that. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that makes the no, list. No, it, it does. Actually, it is. I mean, partly, right, um, homework, but partly because it's relevant. And this is a little of what opened up during the pandemic, which is I have been in so many, you know, get togethers, the virtual get togethers that various, you know, companies or people have put together of meeting peers in other industries and in other companies. Um, that has been the kind of one of the silver linings of what the pandemic has done. And that, and I'm finding that I'm learning a ton um, with through others, and it's whether it's around leadership, whether it's marketing, um, or just personally, and mm-hmm. it's folks that you know you have a lot in common with, and you just didn't realize or have access to connecting with them. So, yeah, that's probably been the biggest um, change in my biggest source of learning right now. Who else would you like to hear on the podcast? Their title is not CMO, but I probably have learned the most from when it comes to marketing. And that is Gary Hirschberg, who is the founder of Stonyfield. Um, and, you know, I had the opportunity, even though um, he was no longer, you know, leading Stonyfield, I the first thing I said when I joined that company was I'm going to just shadow Gary. I want to learn who this guy is because he is the brand. And, um, and th- you know, in my time there, I learned more about marketing than I had, you know, the years before in all of the, you know, world's largest and best CPG companies. And, you know, I'll just, maybe I'll tease it with, I think when you grow up in a large company with the large brands, your ideas, your brand ideas start with paid at the center and earned and owned, you know, kind of surround. Mm-hmm. When you start a company from nothing and when you truly are, it's a bigger purpose that you're trying to initiate and bring to the world, what you start with is actually in the owned space and you use earned to amplify and the cherry on top when you know you've gotten, you know, is the paid. And so there's just the way he thinks 
about brands and communication, I have never seen inside a large company. And I'm very thankful to have had the opportunity to have cross paths and learn from him. So he doesn't have CMO as a title, but no, I think- no, we've we've had founders on, we've had entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. we have CEOs, and, you know, and everyone has a different perspective. It's a great idea, and he would be he would be great fun to talk with. So that's a really good idea. So let let's let's try that. Absolutely happy to connect you, <laughs> Linda. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It, it is somewhat of a you know feels a little surreal to be talking to you because, like I said, I've been following you since you know the P and G days. Well, it's good to reconnect. Thank you, Linda. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Linda Lee. Three takeaways for your business and life from this one. The first one, the clarity of a single-minded goal to guide your behavior and to guide your focus. I loved how Linda talked about when I asked her why she went to Campbell. She said, I wanted to win in soup. Soup is the trademark brand of the company, the original brand of the company. It wasn't healthy. My job was to win in soup. There's nothing more powerful than a leader with clarity and single-mindedness in their goals. Second takeaway, bring a bit of science to your brand building. Linda was trained as a scientist. She started at P&G as a scientist. She brings the scientific method to her brand building. She asks questions about goals, boundaries, parameters. She looks for the problem to solve. She develops hypotheses. She begins executing and learning and re-executing. So the scientific method in brand building, it's powerful. She lives it. We all should live it more. Third takeaway is when we talked about talent and building an organization and how to attract and retain talent today, she quickly went to chemistry, pride, values, and an acid test of the pride an employee has in your organization is do they buy and use and love your brands? That's a good test for everyone. And if your employees don't, you should ask why not and find a way that they also fall in love with your brands. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.